because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein this week, I'm Don Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress. And with me is CIP's Head of Research, Stefan Henn. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Don. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in this week. The Guardian published an op-ed by Nobel Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz called The Climate Crisis is Our Third World War. It Needs a Bold Response. And his main argument is that the cost of fighting climate change is really irrelevant because climate, climate change is an existential threat. And so he asks, when the U.S. was attacked during the Second World War, no one asked, can we afford to fight the war? It was an existential matter. We could not afford not to fight it. The same goes for the climate crisis. Now, the first thing that I'll point out is uh, I want to encourage everybody to watch or rewatch and definitely share Alex's Green New Deal video that went up, I guess, last week uh, from Prager University. If you just go and um, search on YouTube for Alex Epstein Green New Deal, it'll come up. It's gotten well over a million hits just on YouTube alone, let, let alone all of the internet. And it addresses exactly this idea that we have to do something like the Green New Deal because climate is an existential threat. But there are some new things that come out in Stiglitz's piece that I wanted to talk about. So with that in mind, he goes on to say that, um, or just if you think about what he's saying when he's saying like, look, this is like World War II and we have to fight it. So one piece of context that we have to keep in mind at the outset is just the sheer destructiveness of World War II. And I mean, definitely that includes the just un unbelievable number of lives lost. I mean, millions upon millions. But I'm just talking about, for the purposes of this piece, the economic toll. Like if you look at what it cost America, which bore relatively small part of it, um, we still spent years where Americans lived in a far, far lower standard of living um, in, in many ways, even than the Depression. That is, they had jobs, but there was so much rationing and restrictions on economic activity in order to enable fighting the war that people really endured genuine deprivations. And, you know, it was a real tragedy, but it was necessary. But obviously, you don't want to go fighting wars if you can avoid it, even if you're only just looking at the economic costs. And I would think that that would be non-controversial, that like war is not really a great economic endeavor. But it turns out that Stiglitz disagrees. Like He thinks that World War II and his war on climate change would be good for the economy. So he says, the war on the climate emergency, if correctly waged, would actually be good for the economy. See, I didn't just make that up. Uh, just as the Second World War set the stage for America's golden economic era, the fastest rate of growth in its history admits shared prosperity. So what he's really saying here is it would have been a tragedy or at least an economic tragedy if the U.S. hadn't had to fight World War II. Like his view is supposedly that like we would have been poor and not had prosperity if there were more Americans still alive, if Americans hadn't suffered through years of deprivations, of rationing, if there hadn't been calculable amounts of wealth like oil and steel and rubber that were turned into tanks, bullets and bombs rather than things that actually enhance people's standard of living. So his view is 
yeah, that that we would have been all poorer if that would have just been used to make people more prosperous. And I mean, the reality is that post-war prosperity, well, notice that it's post-war. It was precisely made possible by the fact that we were no longer at war. We were able to roll back regulations and taxes that had been in place even before the war with the New Deal. This is the re- the first New Deal, not the green one. And the and it was that that unleashed a real wave of prosperity. Now, how in the world can Stiglitz arrive at this kind of conclusion? How can he think that scrapping cheap, plentiful, reliable energy and the billions upon billions of capital invested in it and all the skills that are embodied in people who have spent a lifetime learning how to get it and bring it to the market and provide us with affordable power for all kinds of uses. Um, how can he believe that you know the raising taxes and spending trillions of dollars we don't have today, how does he believe that that's going to create prosperity? And I mean, he tells us his answer. He says, the Green New Deal would stimulate demand, ensuring that all available resources were used and the transition to the green economy would likely lush, usher in a new boom. I like that likely. I would, I would love that quantified, like, okay, what's the case? What is the unlikely case in his view? But that, uh, setting that aside, you know, there's two fundamental ways of understanding the cause of prosperity. So one way is that prosperity is really the product of the free human mind finding out better and better ways to create wealth. But the other view, which is very widespread, including amongst many economists, is effectively sees prosperity as magical. It's like we automatically innovate, we automatically create wealth. Like that's the easy part. That's just like, you don't have to really do anything for that to happen. The hard part is just making sure there's demand for products and services. And so, well, how are we going to make sure that there's demand? And the answer is, well, we'll just have the government borrow and spend or even just print up a bunch of money. And in, in economics, this view is called Keynesianism, but that's a bit unfair to Keynes because like he would have never dreamed of applying it to today's situation of enormous prosperity and low unemployment. He was talking about how to deal with a temporary lull in aggregate demand. And you can debate whether he was right there. But the idea that in today's context, that's an even plausible way to think about things, I think is just, you can't, you can't appeal to Keynes even for that. And Stiglitz's argument is actually worse than that, though, I think, because he's not, like, he's not just talking about stimulating demand. It's not, it's, it's really Keynesianism plus good old Soviet style central planning of the economy. That's what the Green New Deal is, right? Because it's not just saying, like, let's throw a bunch of money at the economy and then we'll have demand. It is, let's throw it precisely at what the government says. These are the kinds of energy sources to use. These are the kinds of technologies. This is the kind of, you know, economic activity you should engage in. You should be installing this kind of uh, insulation in a building and so on. And I mean, you know, by this logic, Venezuela before Chavez should have been poor and Venezuela after Chavez should have been rich because after Chavez, they had way more government control of the economy, way more central planning and way more government spending of money. Finally, let me point this out. I've indicated this a little bit. The whole thing is just completely sloppy and vague, right? Like he has that line about, you know, it's likely to generate all kinds of great economic activity. And if you were really accepted that 
there was this a real dire problem with CO2, this sort of like general, well, let's just have some sort of Green New Deal, like that would not follow at all. You would be thinking about like, what are our different options? What are the costs and benefits of different approaches? And you see none of that in Stiglitz. And certainly you see no concern for one of the things you should be most concerned about, which is the cost of energy. Like Stiglitz is allegedly this brilliant economist and he does not discuss the cost of energy at all, like not a word about it. He, he doesn't discuss various policy alternatives. It's just, we have to do something. The Green New Deal is something, therefore we have to do it. And you, you might accuse me of like, like this, if he's a Nobel laureate in economics, it cannot be as bad as you're saying. So uh, it must be a straw man, Watkins. But I really encourage you to go look up this piece. But um, I mean, this is par for the course for Stiglitz. He was effectively the arch villain in my book equals unfair on a slightly different group of issues. But it's he's just so filled with hatred of capitalism that like he'll he'll invoke any idea in order to oppose it, even if it is completely sloppy and completely unsupported. Stefan, I'm curious if you had a chance to read this and what your impressions were. I must say I haven't read it, but I'm fascinated by this analogy to World War II, because I, I think it mattered a great deal that America was able to, you know, put out so many more tanks and aircraft and ship tonnage and, and so on. Uh, over the course of World War II, and especially in, in warfare, in strategic warfare, economics matter a lot. It matters a lot how you spend your resources and how you, how you use them. Now, it's a more central planning approach, but it, this is important. And, uh, you know, it's, this essentially argues for staying in this uh, wartime economy. Uh, and this, I think, as you said, with Venezuela, I think this resembles more like Eastern Europe after World War II, you know, stagnating economy falling behind, you know, the entire population being poor because of the central planning in the areas where the Soviet Union ruled versus the Western allies and, and you know, the freed part of Germany and, and the Western hemisphere, uh, then going to prosperity because it was free, right? So it's, I'm very fascinated how, like, economists ignore this, uh, connection between good and bad economics uh, during wartime because it's important how you spend your resources especially in wartime like japan could have was pretty much devastated and only with the help of america was able to recover from this war and uh, it's not like oh we fight a war and then we are better off yeah i mean that's that's a really good point you know it's it, it, by his, like you would really if you were really thinking about the issue you'd ask all right what has been the aftermath of war for other economies rather than America during World War II? And then, okay, if they all just like leap to prosperity, maybe that would be at least a question of, oh, is there something about war that creates prosperity? But that is so the exception. Uh, and I, I did mention my book Equals Unfair. I actually talk about precisely this issue of, well, why did we have a post-war boom? And so I encourage anybody who's interested in that uh, to see my book. Stefan, what's your first story? Uh, I want to talk about India's uh, energy needs of the near future. So according to a Reuters article, uh, India's government has announced that it probably will increase its coal-fired power generation capacity by over 22% over the next three years. So that this is until end of uh, 2021. 
And um, so even though India's power demand recently decreased by more than 3%, uh, which is because of a lackluster economy, um, they, the government predicts significant demand growth in the near future. And the International Energy Agency also sees India to become uh, the second largest coal consumer uh, after China in the early 2020s. And I find this very plausible, of course, if you just think about the potential on the paper that India has. So uh, India has about 1.3 billion humans, uh, just a few less than China right now, and it uh, probably will overtake China in the population growth uh, area. So there are as many Indians as Chinese about, and then they only have half of the CO2 emissions of the American economy, whereas China has double uh, the amount of CO2 emissions annually as as the American economy has. So India is on many levels far poorer than China, but definitely far, far poorer than America. And so this also means that there are literally hundreds of millions of Indians and also Chinese waiting to get to the level of prosperity that you and I enjoy, Don. So there's a huge potential for energy demand growth in India and over the short term and over the long term as well. And I think this is this is really illustrative of the fact that the future emissions of CO2 uh, you know, from coal-fired capacity or anything else, traffic, oil-derived fuels and so on, most of the future emissions will come from other countries than the United States or Europe. So, you know, hundreds of millions of people, as I mentioned, in India alone, and they will probably grow over the next few uh, years by a lot more than developed uh, economies, you know, given the right policies, of course, that's always a big caveat. But this also puts into perspective um, something like the Green New Deal for America. So even, even... all the democratic presidential candidates that have either endorsed the Green New Deal or put something similar online uh, as an energy program for America, they don't have uh, remotely a plan for things like India's increasing energy demand. They have no alternative. You know, they're saying, oh, renewables, renewables. But as we see, India chooses coal-fired capacity over the next years. So even if American domestic policies would be very successful in reducing CO2 emissions, there's no global plan uh, from any of these candidates that I've seen. So they they are making some arguments about a border adjustment tax, but that doesn't help with domestic energy uh, consumption in India or China. And so this is going to add a lot more capacity in the future. And it it begs the question, like, what are these candidates and, and the advocates to say, okay, we need to drastically reduce CO2 emissions doing internationally because there, there's a global CO2 budget. And if you think that CO2 must be limited, then you have to engage with it on a global level. There's, there's no use in crippling the American economy, for example, and then having India and China just, you know, doubling their, their CO2 emissions in this. So... I think this is a this is a particular failure by most politicians that talk a lot about you know domestic programs of energy efficiency and you know 
killing the the coal industry and so and they don't even remotely recognize the dimension of the energy supply problem and the what they are actually proposing in terms of CO2 emission limitations because this is an international thing this is an international challenge if you want to limit CO2 emissions of course i don't think the indians should do that because whatever the climate will be in 2050 or 2100 I don't think it will be remotely as devastating as if the Indian economy stays on its current level with most rural Indians being very, very poor and they not having remotely the energy and technology at their disposal to deal with any kind of weather or climate related issue. But it's, it's, it really boggles the mind to think about like China is already emitting twice the amount of CO2 as America and it's still growing in that. And India hasn't even gotten to the place where China is right now and is still growing in population and the economy. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. I want to stress a different part of this whole discussion, which is that like this should be good news, right? Like people should hear about what's going on in India and China and their kind of rapid uh, adoption of energy and all of the wealth and prosperity that follows from that this should be completely exciting. Like imagine, and, and yet people are not excited about it. They only talk about it in this kind of context where it's, oh man, what are we going to do that these other countries are increasing their CO2? Like, you know, imagine you have a poor neighbor and you see him kind of work his way out from nothing and become like, you know, the next uh, Jeff Bezos. And all you're thinking is, Oh my gosh, he he had such lower carbon footprint back when he was poor. What are we going to do now? Like there are certain ideas or conclusions that are a good indication that you've gone off track in your thinking even if you can't spot the exact error. Like just to take an extreme example, although I'm not equating these things. Like if you end up with an argument that show, you know, says, "Oh, Hitler and Stalin were, you know, they were on the right track." Like you know you've gone horribly horribly wrong in your reasoning. And I think there's a similar thing here. Like if you view the increasing energy and prosperity of India and China as a negative, then like you should, you've really gone off the rails. Like the, you know, one of the reasons we've praised Bill Gates in this show is because even though we think he's too worried about the impact of CO2, he has that view of like prosperity is a good thing and any solution has to lower CO2 in a way that's consistent with people, especially poor people having energy and prosperity. And I mean, the reason that we've gone off the whole track is that the ideal of people, their whole orientation is not human flourishing, but non-impact. And so if that's the way that you're seeing the world, then, you know, if you see a billion Indians are getting wealthier and using more energy, all you see is the impact, not the benefits, because you don't regard them as benefits. You regard them as like, this is, this is more of harming the earth and ruining the climate. My next story is, what is my next story? Okay, here it is. So this is a really interesting article that uh, I read in the publication Quillette um, by an assistant professor in the Department of Meteorology and Climate Science at San Jose State University. The author's name is Patrick Brown. And the title is Empiricism and Dogma, Why Left and Right Can't Agree on Climate Change. And when I saw that title, I approached it with trepidation because usually these things, 
trying to analyze why people reach the conclusions they reach are usually some form of the other side is stupid and evil for not seeing my conclusion. But I, th I think he, he had a really thoughtful analysis. And essentially, he starts out by taking this, this kind of mainstream narrative that, well, look, conservatives are just anti-science and the left is pro-science. And that's why the left understands that climate change is a problem and the right denies it. And he points out that like, even if you accept the IPCC version of uh, climate as that is, you know, what it means to be pro-science, like the, to, to attribute the left's embrace of that as based primarily on reason and love of science, well, you'd have to ignore the fact that liberals are just as likely as conservative, conservatives to deny science on the safety of vaccines and genetically modified foods. And so he says that that kind of explanation, which, you know, that makes you feel very good if you're on the left, that just does not hold up. And so he says, like, so we still have this question, what explains the divide of the left and right? Because on the other hand, you can't just reverse it and go, oh, well, the right really cares about science because set aside your view of climate change, just something like, uh, you know, the intelligent design and whatever. There's all sorts of things where you can clearly say, all right, the right is inconsistent in its view of science. And so what Brown says is, rather than thinking about the political divide on global warming as the result of dogma versus logic, a better explanation is that people tend to embrace conclusions, scientific or otherwise, that support themes, ideologies, and narratives that are pre-existing components of their worldview. So it's, you have a certain view of how politics should work, or more broadly, just a certain kind of philosophy or ideology, and then you'll tend to embrace scientific ideas that seem more consistent with that and reject ones that seem less consistent. And so starting in that, he, with that sort of hypothesis, he goes on to examine what are the things about climate sciences, it's currently, it's understood in the mainstream that attracts the left and that repels the right. And so, for example, he points out that, you know, the, uh, that climate, as it's currently thought about, lends itself to collectivism, to anti-business conclusions, right? Like, you know, the, the left is very critical of corporations and here it's corporations are ruining the planet. So, you know, that it, it, that is very appealing to them. It, the collectivism is like, oh, we need authoritarian things that dictate what kind of energy we use and what kind of farming uh, processes and what kind of cars we buy. So it's very attractive on that front to the left. But most perceptive, he identifies as, quote, the most fundamental issue, humanism versus non-humanism. That's my way of framing it. The way he puts it is, those on the right are more likely to privilege the interests of humanity over the interests of other species or the, quote, interests of the planet as a whole to the degree that there is such a thing. On the other hand, those on the left are more likely to emphasize a kind of pan-species egalitarianism and care for our shared environment, even if it means implementing policies that run counter to human short-term interests. Now, I think I, I agree with that assessment. Um, I do think that the deeper issue here, at least a deeper issue, is whether the right is anti-science, even on the climate issue, because Brown certainly thinks there are that they are. And I think there's a sense in which he's right. Uh, I don't think in the sense of the people who have really thought about and looked into this issue, such as the ones we've interviewed on Power Hour, 
I don't think you can paint them as well. They're just reasoning backwards from their politics. I mean, the the politics of so-called climate skeptics, in my experience, is quite eclectic and runs across the ideological spectrum. Um, But I do think that if you just think of conservatives broadly as a group, that it's very common to reason backwards from politics in the same way that Brown suggests. And so one of the consequences of that, or one of the signs of that is that if they um, don't just deny the kind of exaggerated or unjustified portions of mainstream climate science, um, but they reject even very well-established things without good reasons, or they embrace, you know, like, oh, I know it's causing climate change, and they have whatever their pet theory is that has even less support than the kind of, you know, greenhouse gas uh, hypothesis. Uh, I think those are signals that it's your reasoning backwards from your politics. And that's why I think it, it it's the uh, CIP and on this podcast, we really try to stress that the first thing is just you start out looking at the evidence in an even handed and precise way, rather than just starting from, I know that, you know, this, this physical phenomenon can't be happening because of my politics. Like, no, you really have to examine the evidence. Um, but then the second is that you need to be pro-human. So it's you, you're not committed to some scientific view in order to support your political policies. Rather, it's that you want to choose the policies that are in fact best for human life. And so that really requires you to first think about, well, what is the, the actual state of reality that is going to impact human life one way or the other. And then it's selecting policies that will achieve the best outcome for human beings, which as we've argued is not going to be the kind of totalitarian policies of the catastrophists. Um, but like even in a case of major rapid warming is really going to be focused on things that are effective and things that are consistent with prosperity, including affordable energy. So Stefan, that's, that's my thoughts on this article. Yeah. So leaving aside the question whether quote unquote, the left as a group is pro science, even on the climate issue. And we've seen like people exaggerate, uh, you know, whenever it fits the narrative with the recent tornado cluster where they claim that this is global warming and so on. But you could see that on both sides that there's a legitimate issue sort of thinking things the other way around, right? So you see some sort of implied result from from politics and then you see, oh, there's something wrong with that because that's how most people usually come to be skeptics of, of something, right? So a lot of people have probably seen like, oh yeah, they will take over the, the economy with central planning and then they are offering something like a non-solution, like a so 100% solar and wind power grid. And then there's something wrong with that and, and people investigate and you know see more of that. But of course, if we want to make sound decisions, we obviously need to analyze more carefully, like what is the issue? What is the real threat? Uh, how to think about these issues and so on. But you can see sort of the same fallacies on both sides, but they end up aligning with different politics. I, I think in this case, Brown is right in arguing that sort of this is going on to some extent, but I, I, I think it's not totally illegitimate to, you know, question the political implications 
and then seeing what's behind it. Because, you know, with every given issue, we are not experts on everything and we have to, you know, spend our time on specific issues. No, climate is on both sides seen as a big issue on the right, more like a threat to freedom or on the, on the right side is probably a, a bad category to begin with, but it's, definitely uh, something where you have to carefully investigate and not just uh, sort of align with with the right people as happens in about every field, I think. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And so like, I definitely think what you could say, like if you were just a layman and you had not heard anything about this and, you know, you were suddenly dropped into North America and started hearing the calls for the Green New Deal, um, I definitely think you could say, whoa, there's something really wrong with this view of what they're saying is that we're going to achieve prosperity and opportunity through a totalitarian takeover of the economy and specifically the energy economy. And then you could think like whatever is true of the science, like that cannot be right. So I definitely think like it's not that you have to be completely agnostic on these things, but what what I don't think you could do is leap to the conclusion about what must be true about the climate from what you know is true from a wider context of knowledge about uh, the kind of economics and policies that allow human beings to flourish. Um, But yeah, I definitely don't want to say that anybody who has not become, you know, climate science level expert has to basically be agnostic on something like, you know, the Green New Deal or, you know, carbon tax. Stefan, what's your next story? Recently, there has been a piece of legislation in Ohio, and this is Ohio House Bill 6, which was signed into law recently. And it's essentially a nuclear and coal bailout bill. And so this obviously has sparked some controversy. Um, And what it does is it essentially adds um, some additional cost to the ratepayer bills, in order to pay for some nuclear and coal capacity that feeds the Ohio power grid uh, in order to keep these power plants alive. Uh, And the operator said they would shut down in the near future um, if that wouldn't be done. Uh, So just to give some numbers, uh, so for the nuclear part, there will be 85 cents for residential consumers and some uh, more significant Uh, amount for industrial consumers added to the monthly electricity bill uh, to save these two nuclear power plants in Ohio uh, starting in 2021. And for the coal power plants, immediately there will be a $1.50 addition per month starting in 2020. Um, So, and this is deemed necessary to, you know, provide a reliable uh, grid capacity and so on, and it essentially bails out nuclear and coal power plants as opposed to natural gas and solar and wind capacity. And so obviously the solar and wind and uh, also the natural gas industry have been arguing, okay, so this is just uh, bailing out these market failures that can compete with super cheap natural gas and super cheap solar and wind power. And... uh, yeah, so I fundamentally disagree with that view because, and I also disagree with this law, by the way. So uh, as much as 
I might be accused of being a, a fossil fuel chill or nuclear chill or whatever. Um, I disagree with this bailout policy because I, I think it doesn't fundamentally tackle the problem. So I'm, for explaining this, I need to, to get into the, the power markets and you know tell people a bit how this works. So the way this works is solar and wind um, have no fuel costs, obviously. And so they have very uh, low marginal generation cost. What does that mean? So solar and wind could essentially produce power even at a price of zero. You know, if you get something like a um, production tax credit, so an amount of money from the taxpayer per kilowatt hour that you produce as an energy source, which is often the case with renewable energy sources like solar and wind. So they are, they are the favorites of the politicians and the politicians say, hey, you get a subsidy per produced kilowatt hour. But even if they don't, they are very cheap to just generate their kilowatt hours of electricity whenever they are ready, whenever the weather is right, right? So, and coal and nuclear units are typically built to provide a steady flow of electricity at a high capacity level. And so they are actually cheap power sources if they are allowed to operate in the role they are built for. But now that solar and wind are coming onto the grid and allowed to produce whenever they are ready, not when demand needs more electric power, this means everyone else is having to sort of adapt to their production level. So when solar and wind are actually producing a lot on the power grid, a coal power plant or nuclear power plant has to ramp down its production level to maybe like 50%. I'm, I'm just making up numbers here to, to make it illustrative. But this is, and this is then a very inefficient level for a coal power plant or nuclear power plant. So they, they need to, they are built to produce at 80, 90% of capacity constantly instead of going up and down according to the needs for solar and wind. But solar and wind then produce cost at the site of the coal and nuclear power plants to operate these as sort of backup power, power capacity. And, but they don't have to pay the cost for doing so. They just say, oh, we'll just produce. We have very low marginal costs, so we will uh, sell our uh, electric power on the wholesale market at you know, discount prices, and we don't, we don't really care. We will make our money per kilowatt hour anyways, even at one cent per kilowatt hour. And so in a sense, coal and nuclear cannot compete in this market. So they would typically be shut down as the operator threatened. And then the problem is that solar and wind on their own, of course, cannot uh, produce reliable power. So a solar and wind uh, power grid wouldn't actually work. So the coal and nuclear capacity has to, has to have at least the backup role for this entire system to, to work. And so, but they are, they are pushed out of the market because the market is rigged, not because it's a free market where people can just join or leave the market according to their uh, profit margin. It's a very highly regulated thing. And wind and solar are introduced by sort of government force and force cost on the other power producers. And so this is not being addressed by this bill. They, the legislators just said, okay, so that's the case. We will not, uh, you know, 
we will leave wind and solar just on the grid. And this particular bill even uh, gives some of this uh, money uh, raised from the ratepayers to some solar projects, uh, ironically. Uh, and we will fix that by giving solar, uh, by giving nuclear and coal capacity some additional money that they couldn't make on the market. And this is not at all addressing the problem. It's just, and I believe in the future there will be other bailouts necessary uh, if this is continuing, because you will see more and more wind and solar capacity added to the power grid. This will escalate the cost for the total system uh, because they are unreliable power producers. And then the reliable power producers will see more and more pressure on the downward pressure on the price, and they cannot actually operate under these conditions because they were not built to do so. And obviously, natural gas is more able to cope with the ramping up and down. It's a more flexible power source. And they would be actually happy to see coal and nuclear leave the market so they would have a better profit margin just to produce, just to, uh, um, you know, give this backup power service to solar and wind. And so I, I don't agree with that at all. It, it looks like a bailout of nuclear and coal because they can't compete, but this is not true. And it doesn't fix the actual problem with this rigged market where sort of a parasitic solar and wind can just use the power grid services and force others to pay the, the bill for that. Yeah, I mean, this... This comes up in politics a lot, right? Like the government will create a problem by intervening in the economy. And then the solution people see is not to get rid of the earlier controls, but just to introduce new ones. Like during the financial crisis, you had all sorts of government programs that encourage risky lending and encouraging people to load up on mortgage-backed securities. And the solution wasn't, hey, government stop doing that. It was here, let's add Dodd-Frank. And and inevitably, these interventions come at their own cost. And so you have to think, like, what fundamentally is going wrong here? And um, this isn't a perfect analogy, but one way to think about it is like, all right, you know, the government says to Apple, hey, we have a whole bunch of programmers that we are going to say you have to use, but the, they don't always want to show up for work. You know, sometimes they'll be there, sometimes they won't. But whenever they do, you have to send your regular engineers home and use our guys, but don't worry, they're only going to charge you a fraction of the price and we're going to subsidize them. So they'll be okay. And then Apple notices that, oh my gosh, all our engineers who were expecting to be making 200,000 a year, now they're making, you know, 75,000. So they're just leaving us like they're, you know, they, they, that wasn't the agreement. And so now we're in a situation where we're losing all the people we need to keep the company operating. And so Apple says, instead of, hey, stop sending us your lousy employees and forcing us to use them, it says, hey, we need a bailout government. You need to help supplement the, the salaries of our good engineers. And it just creates this whole ridiculous mess when really the, there's no reason to go down that path in the first place. All right. My next story, we actually, uh, this is, I think, the first uh, CIP mailbag. Maybe not. Maybe we've had another one. But we got a question from a listener named Jordan. I don't know if he wants his last name mentioned, but it, I thought it was pretty interesting. So he says, how does Yellowstone fit into your conception of human flourishing? And obviously, nature preserves in general. The abundance of natural resources could assuredly benefit human flourishing, and yet I think most uh, the most cynical utilitarian recognizes the intangible 
yet powerful experience humans have interacting with untouched beauty of nature, uh, or I'm sorry, the untouched beauty of the past, the pastoral. How do you guys approach this concept? Is there room for agreement with the greens in this regard? Um, Alex says a little bit about this kind of thing in the moral case for fossil fuels, but the, the kind of short version is the, the way that we think about it, I, or at least I'll speak for myself from a policy view is freedom that on a free market, people will have incentives to put things to their most valuable use. And as Jordan points out, natural beauty is a tremendous value. Although I should point out, it's something that has to be made actually valuable to human beings. Like a remote middle of nowhere forest is not valuable to many people, but if you build roads to it and you have, you know, an infrastructure where people can camp and dispose of garbage and things like that, like they can be tremendously valuable. And so there's a huge economic incentive to use them for that value rather than something that for that piece of land would be way lower value. Like there'd be no reason to, you know, stick a Walmart in the middle of the Grand Canyon versus having it there for its natural beauty. And the same thing from Yellowstone. Um, so I think in some cases, yeah, you wouldn't mine or drill in those areas at all. Uh, but I think it, you, it, what you would also see is it can be done in unobtrusive ways in many cases. So I do not equate natural beauty and preserving natural beauty with zero sign of human life. Like I think this this idea that like, oh my gosh, I saw this little piece of metal in the ground and that, you know, that completely wiped out the value. That is all from an anti-human perspective. Um, I think that in most cases, or at least in many cases, we would be able to have both. That is, you'd be able to have both the resource abundance and the natural beauty. And this gets to why I think there's no room for agreement with the greens. That is not how they view it because they do not want to preserve natural beauty for human beings. They want to protect wilderness from human beings. And so they oppose most of the things that would allow us to enjoy natural beauty. Um, you know, it's like they don't want roads that lead into these places. And even wider than that, like the only reason that we can enjoy natural beauty is precisely because of the unnatural abundance from fossil fueled civilization that they want to oppose. And so the, the that there there's no commonality here because the fundamental is not do are some places good for natural beauty and should they be used for that purpose? The fundamental is that are you trying to uh, are you trying to do what's best for human life, including enabling people to enjoy natural beauty or do you oppose human life? And so what you say is, no, we can't touch nature in any way. Or, you know, at most I'll compromise and you know, fine, you can put in, you know, a couple ranger stations or something. Um, but there, there's a fundamental conflict in values that I don't think can be bridged. And if all the greens were trying to do is keep, you know, Yellowstone uh, a place where people could enjoy themselves, like, I don't think that we would be doing this podcast week after week. Like, you know, that that might be grounds for disagreement in certain cases. But what what they want to do is that they want to turn all of the world into a nature preserve and not allow any industrial activity. And, you know, using it's a smokescreen to use, oh, well, you know, allowing people to uh, transform nature means we wouldn't have Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon. It's just absolutely not true.
Stefan. Oh, one thing I did want to mention, um, uh, a guy named John Hersey wrote an article for a publication called the objective standard called liberating public lands that I, um, helped a little bit with the editing of, and I think it covers this issue in a, in a pretty good way. So that, that is another resource in addition to Alex's book to look into. Any thoughts, Stefan? Yeah, I think Alex mentioned on a previous Power Hour, uh, in the context of human flourishing, there's sort of the material flourishing part and there's a spiritual flourishing part. So, you know, of course, we want good food and uh, good um, medical services and, and all the material stuff that we need to live. But, of course, enjoying nature is part of, uh, you know, spiritual satisfaction that we can get out of life. And this is certainly a a human need as well. And so I agree, get the government out of this because for the same reason that the government bureaucrat doesn't know what kind of uh, you know car propulsion system I need, uh, the government doesn't know what kind of you know recreational uh, beautiful patch of land I want. Um, but yeah, this is like preserving a beautiful part of nature for human enjoyment, of course, is part of human flourishing and is sort of enabled by a high energy, sophisticated, productive civilization. So in the past, our ancestors and today poor people on the planet have to destroy, you know, parts of their surroundings that are very beautiful for the, for the only reason that it's, it's either destroying that and surviving or, you know, not surviving, right? And then, then the choice is pretty clear. You will cut down every piece of forest and, you know, kill every animal inside. And so to, in a very wealthy and productive society, you can afford not to do that. So one of the things that coal, the coal industry did was saving European forests and, you know, to some extent, American forests. So it, it's not like opposing things like either or. It's, yeah, you want a high energy high-tech civilization in order to be able to preserve, you know, patches of nature that you enjoy for human flourishing purposes. All right, Stefan, your last story. So uh, this is a story about energy efficiency rules, and this has been sitting on the shelf for quite a while now, on my shelf at least. Um, and this is uh, a petition by the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and they had this out last year, and they petitioned the Department of Energy um, about changing the efficiency rules for dishwashers. Uh, so the government, starting in the 1980s, has uh, created these efficiency rules for all kinds of home appliances, and in particular uh, dishwashers here. And that has led to uh, the average dishwasher, dishwasher cycle um, doubling in time. And so this is meant by the government to preserve energy and water usage. And uh, so this, of course, then made a lot of consumers not so happy because the performance of these home appliances went down and also the results weren't as good as previously. And so the Competitive Enterprise Institute asked the Department of Energy to change that. And what they did was they didn't really roll back the, the energy efficiency regulations. What they did is they said they will create another category of dishwasher where dishwashers that use more energy and more water are available to consumers. And so just the basic uh, physics behind that is 
um, if you are increasing the heat of you know a gallon of water in your dishwasher at a in shorter time you need exponentially more energy so you know by stretching out uh, the time the dishwasher takes this will save energy of for this service of getting your dishes washed and so you also need a little less water for that and so this is sort of a micro regulation of your daily life and there are a lot of um, examples so there was in the 1990s uh, the comedy series seinfeld had a had an interesting episode where they had this uh, shower hat black market because the government regulated shower hats the, the flow of water through the shower hats and then the shower hats were were not that great an experience anymore and people bought sort of shower hats from other countries on the black market out of a truck so i, I found this hilarious and a lot of commentators uh, made jokes about this so the government is uh, you know in your dishwasher in your shower hat in your flush toilet and so on and, uh, you know, Americans actually have to buy uh, Canadian black market appliances here. But I also want to, to emphasize here that the Trump administration, uh, you know, followed the Competitive Enterprise Institute here, which is sort of good for the consumer, but it's only a quick fix and it doesn't change the fundamental problem because these regulations are not rolled back. It's a total uphill battle. So for every administration that loosened this regulatory framework a little bit, there will be like thousands of pages in the Federal Register again for, you know, more stringent um, efficiency rules. And even something like uh, mileage regulations for for passenger cars, these CAFE standards. Uh, okay, so even if Trump is able to roll back a little bit of the, of the regulatory framework um, and get this through the courts and get this... California, which is fighting this right now as a state, um, the next administration might just reverse that and get even more stringent regulation. Then they will argue, okay, now that the Trump administration had, has stalled this for four years or eight years, uh, whatever the next election cycle will bring, um, now we will need even double down on that and have even more stringent regulation. So the government is really in, in every piece of technology that you have in your home, unfortunately. And the bureaucrats cannot possibly know what kind of shower head or dishwasher or, you know, car you need. And they will just make this one size fits all regulations for all the home appliances. It's not even clear to me that this will save energy or CO2 emissions or whatever the goal of the government is overall. Because think about this. When I buy, buy a new refrigerator, the government will have regulated the level of insulation this uses in an attempt to decrease the overall electricity use in my household, right? But what then happens is that, you know, some Chinese manufacturer has to put a lot more energy and material into the refrigerator. Does this increase or decrease the total life cycle energy use or the total life cycle CO2 emissions? It's not even clear to me that it helps, but it certainly makes things more expensive. And so, yeah, good work by the Competitive Enterprise Institute to get this little victory, but we shouldn't, you know, see this as something else, as a little victory in a very brutal uphill battle that we are currently losing. So one thing or one question is like, why is it so hard to actually reverse these kinds of regulations? And 
I think partly there's just certain dynamics of the regulatory state that make reversing things very hard. But in particular, what you have here is a situation where one side is saying like, look, this is, you know, good for the environment. And what are you having to give up? Like, it's just your dishwasher takes a little bit longer, or your shower isn't as ple pleasant. And I think part of what's going on is that there's a real contempt for human pleasure and human happiness. Like that is not given any moral weight. But if you just think of like the thousand little things that make your life worse, like that adds up to your life is worse. You know, if your dishwasher is worse, if your shower is worse, if your refrigerator is worse, like if everything in your house is worse than it could be, then that is a real, uh, like that is a real negative. And even like the, the fact that something like, so this is not like this one regulation should be an, considered an outrage, but it should be considered annoying. And what's outrageous is that human, there's not sufficient value on human beings enjoyment of life. And so instead, what we're getting is a world where like the only things that count as innovations are doing everything worse. Like if you can make a worse car that runs on batteries and if you can make uh, a worse um, dishwasher that takes less energy, like that's a real innovation. And then if you take what in my view are real innovations, like we had a story about potentially real flying cars, it's, oh, well, that's bad because it increases CO2. Or, I mean, take innovations like in the oil and gas industry that have given us greater access to energy. Like that's, no, that's obviously bad. And so I think it's our inverted moral priorities where we're putting a priority on not impacting things and no priority on human enjoyment and human pleasure. And uh, I think so long as that is the case, then it is very hard to fight these things because one side has the high ground and the side trying to roll them back does not. That's it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me, Don Watkins at Don at industrialprogress.net. If you have any interest by a speech by Alex Epstein or anyone else from our team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers at all different price points. You can email me about that at Don at industrialprogress.net. And if you're interested in help with messaging, maybe your organization has a high stakes messaging project and you'd possibly like to be a client of ours, you can let me know that as well. The best thing you can do to support this show is subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com. And if you sign up there, you'll get each week's, uh, our, our weekly newsletter telling you what we're up to at the Center for Industrial Progress, as well as free access to our energy clarity email course which is a great introduction to energy issues. Okay, hope everybody enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week with some more great topics. Until then, I'm Dom Watkins with Stefan Henna, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.